Working Late by Joe West, starring Danny Bell, Joel Callahan, Sally Elizabeth, and Joe West. When you work in an office for a big faceless company, you slowly become a silent cog in an infinite machine. You get so complacent in your routine that so many things get missed, things that should have set off alarm bells. I got like this, and had I noticed half of the things I should have, I would have left LGM before any of this stuff happened. I'll try and recount it as best I can, but I spent so much time on autopilot that only now I'm starting to remember everything that happened. I had been at LGM for three months, and had only moved into that office a week before I started. LGM is one of these middlemen companies that connects clients with other clients, so most of my calls are arranging meetings and playing personal assistant to the sales manager. I'd normally start around 11 o'clock or noon on weekdays and work through until the evening. I don't have much of a day, and as Rachel fondly reminds me, most of our clients are international, so their 9am is usually our 7pm, but I led a pretty uneventful life outside of work, so I didn't mind as much. I was comfortable with my routine. I'd clock in, do my stuff, watch everyone else leave at 4 o'clock and go home a few hours later. It did not take long for me to get complacent. The office came equipped with a glass cube at one end, separate from the rest. It's essentially a glass prison cell, but in her eternal wisdom, Rachel demanded it for the sales team and plastered most of the glass with order breakdowns, basic phrases in different languages and KPI targets. But the cube has its perks. It means when the wider workforce goes home for the day, I don't have to speak to any of them. I'm the ghost that passes unseen to the kitchen, bathroom and printer. Silent but efficient. At least like them, I have my weekends off. The weekend staff consists mainly of a revolving door of students. But on Thursday and Friday nights, or peak nights as Rachel called them, the weekend staff come in for overtime and mostly play around with the empty boxes in the office like actual children. I tend to stick to my cube and put the headphones in, but even I admit to looking forward to the company of people who like to talk about things not work-related. My favourite was Grace, an art student of about my age who started about a month ago. I couldn't imagine working full-time. She muses, stirring a cup of sugar, sorry, hot chocolate, at around 7 o'clock one Thursday night. But you study full-time, don't you? I quit, knowing nothing about how university works. That's different. At least I'm working towards something. This job pays for the food, fuels me to study and get a degree, but I couldn't imagine giving 40 hours to a faceless company like LGM. I shrug. I kept my head down a lot, probably low enough to permanently bruise my chin on the floor. I tried not to think too much about other people in the office, apart from Grace. Somebody's got to pay the bills, I suppose. Oh, what an original answer. So you can afford a flat close to work? I, uh, I don't see it like that. You might as well just move into this building. No one else has, have they? It's been running for three months and we're the only ones here. It's a bit creepy, isn't it? I don't tend to think about it. Have you never gone for a wander around the building? What? No. Not even when it's dead on an evening. Ooh, I bet this whole business is just a front for some evil experiments they're doing. I'm sure the evilest thing they're doing is avoiding paying their taxes. Whatever the case, don't let them rope you into it. The phone rings and I dart back into my cube, desperate to get away from the conflict. I shared the cube with Rachel, a woman fueled by coffee and right-wing feminism. She leaves the door wide open for the sales executives to drop in at the leisure, and she usually keeps this quiet, collected temperament and lets off steam through pen clicking and lip biting, but the days where she lost a cool are what kept me entertained. One such Tuesday lunchtime, two men appeared in clothes resembling hazmat suits, and they put the whole office on pause. Everyone was just staring at them. What did an admin wing need with two people that looked like something off the space program? I saw they were just stood there looking uncomfortable and nervy, and Rachel was not pleased. What the hell are you doing up here? One of them apologised, but the words were muffled under their mask. You work downstairs. You don't come up here. It can't be that important, can it? More muffled apologies, and she sent them packing. 
I presume they were dirty maintenance types that she didn't want to muck up the office. They were probably sanitary by the looks of their suits, and it's at this point that any sensible person would have asked Rachel about them, or asked around the office to see if anyone knew why they were there. But I was lazy, and hated conflict, and kept my head buried, which I think Rachel appreciated. Conversations with her are generally one-sided, and almost exclusively her moaning. A few days after the hazmat people, her attention was on Grace. She took four calls in two hours. Four! Does she even know how to work a phone? Maybe it was just a dead night. They are statistically our busiest nights. That's when we schedule all our meetings for the week ahead. Bloody students. I don't disagree with her out loud. I'm smarter than that. A few more slick and prime business managers pass through the cube as I answer a steady flow of calls. I'd been given a stack of orders to work through and I plodded along at a snail's pace because I didn't understand half of what the inventory was. The contents were either in German or Japanese, and I didn't think it worth to give them a Google Translate. But most of the clients seemed to understand what I was talking about, so I just left them to it. At around three o'clock, a figure appears in scruffy fleece and cargo trousers. He looks old before his time, and the creases in his face are sunken in with dirt. He's the head of security, Connor, and he hardly looks at me. Uh, Rachel, can I borrow you for a minute? Can it wait? Uh, not really. It's something that needs your approval. Tell me it doesn't have something to do with those idiots in the fallout suits. A bit, yeah. There's been a problem downstairs. One of the um, pipes have burst. Then whoever is in charge downstairs needs to deal with it. But they need your approval on how to uh, fix it. She sighs, slams the laptop shut and leaves without saying goodbye. She's done an app and often manners have transcended her. This lifestyle had ground me down to a self-consumed creature who generally didn't listen or notice any alarm bells. The fact that LGM's director was going downstairs to deal with a maintenance issue just washed over me. I didn't even know we had her downstairs, and I certainly didn't care to ask. I do remember a thought flashing for a second. It was Grace telling me her theory that LGM was up to something else. But it dissolved as quickly as it appeared, as soon as Facebook loaded up. The muscle memory had kicked in, subconsciously, and the second Rachel was out the door, I'd given myself a five-minute break. My afternoons were highlighted by fleeting, quiet moments where I could get off working. At the time, being able to look at memes for five minutes was more pressing than noticing anything unusual happening around me. The following Friday night, Grace and I are doing our usual procrastinating in the kitchen. Just a couple of young people on a wild Friday night. She muses, taking another handful of Cheerios straight from the box. I don't believe that. What? It's bloody Rachel asking how many calls I've had tonight. Does she ever sleep? Yeah, in a coffin, I think. Oh, she's relentless. I know she's looking for a reason to get rid of me. Hopefully I can quit before she does. You're leaving? I've gone to university to do something with my life. Not spend Friday night looking at spreadsheets and drinking wine. And I'm the only person on a Sunday. And it's a bank holiday weekend. The phones will be rammed with everyone trying to get their deadlines in. I thought there were a few of you in. There were, but God knows where any of them are. Everyone left one by one without so much as a text. People don't stick fast at this job. I've had 10 people start and leave in the month that I've been here. I bet we've got glowing reviews online. None, actually. People just sort of forget about it. Do you remember Millie? A bit, yeah. Ah yes, Motormouth Millie. A nickname I'd gifted her for the amusement of absolutely no one else. She's in a polyamorous relationship, only has hot water in a flat between 5 and 6 o'clock, and has a cat named Eleven. I found all of this out within the first two minutes of introductions. Yeah, couldn't shut that one up. I had her on Facebook and she posted at least once every hour. But after she left her, her page went silent. Which is odd, and then it was gone completely. I couldn't get hold of her, so I assumed she just wanted to cut ties with this place completely. They've ruined people. Places like this. Some of us don't have much of a personality to begin with. Hmm. 
You managed to keep me entertained. You should see me outside of work. Maybe I will. I'm in. It's been some time since my last date and, well, actual conversation with someone outside of work, but she saw something she liked, and I was sure to give her more of it. Listen, I don't know if you fancy going for a... A whip around lightning quick. There stood Connor, the head of security, who regularly reared his ugly face into the sales cube. His uniform was filthy, and he looked to have a dab on. You're Grace, aren't you? Last time I checked. You're the one who was in on Sunday? Yeah. Why? I've just got to check for security reasons. I'm here every week. Rachel's new role. Connor shrugs and slips out as silently as he entered without giving me a second glance. I watch him leave for as long as I can, putting off looking back at Grace's lovely face. I'd love to go for a drink. Hmm? Well, that's what you were asking, wasn't it? Before punctual Pete showed up. Is Wednesday any good? Yeah, that, that's great. Uh, that's my early day, so I, I finish at six. I know. I've seen the rotor. We swap numbers and begrudgingly go back to the phones, but carry on texting from either side of the cube walls. I spent all weekend thinking about Grace, pooling over TripAdvisor to look at the best restaurants to go on a first date and where's good to dance if she wanted to dance. I'm such a loser. I text her on Sunday. Hope it isn't too bad today. One kiss. Smooth. It was Monday morning when Rachel came in, fresh from her third meeting before noon, fifth coffee in hand. We'd hardly spoken that morning, but her mumbled swears and passive-aggressive sighs did most of the communicating for her. I didn't get a reply, so out of interest I pulled up the call tracker for the day before, and it looked to be going pretty well until four o'clock, when the lines went dead. Did Grace finish early yesterday? Rachel doesn't look up from her diary, scribbling out an appointment with some ferocity. Grace won't be coming back. I let her go. We don't have room for underperformers in this business. My heart sinks, and with every aggressive pen stroke, it's like Rachel is rubbing the point in further. Her angry scribbling turns to tactical plotting over the next few hours, and at one point Tim the techie swings into the office, and I have to entertain him while he waits for Rachel to get back. We chat about work like everyone does, some games that I've pretended that I've played, and apparently he has a date on Sunday night. Lucky him. When Rachel returns, she chastises him for not coming sooner, and then they slither out to see to matters I don't even bother asking about. In the ten minutes of silence, I text Grace. Just heard the news. You okay? I bumped us up to two kisses to show her how worried I was. Rachel reappeared, grinning from ear to ear, and I got the inkling that broken printer Wi-Fi connection was a code name for something else. She flicked lazily through her diary, and she eyed me with a look I don't think I liked. So... I'll be holding interviews next week to fill Grace's position, but in the meantime, I'll need someone to cover the phones on Sunday. You don't mind working late, do you? Of course I bloody did. One of the only perks of the job was having weekends off, but I knew better than to disagree with her. Not at all. I can always count on you. You're my through man. Always on time and ploughing through the weekdays. I don't really have much else to do. Sunday nights are pretty dead anyway. It'll just be you and the security guys in the building. But they'll be knocking around doing their own thing, so just ignore them. Do I need to tell Connor that I'm here? What? On Friday he came in to confirm with Grace that she'd be here. Something about a new rule? Rachel stared at me blankly for a few moments more. Then the knowing cog started turning in her head. Oh, yes, yes, um, that new rule. Don't you worry. I'll ring him now. And off she goes. Again, the fact that such a punctual and detail-obsessed boss would briefly forget her latest office rule didn't seem like a red flag at the time. I was just worried about Grace. Wednesday comes and goes without another word from Grace. I text her a third time. Rain check? Friday becomes my day off this week and I have no idea how people spend weekdays off. I just wander around the town aimlessly. Nip to Aldi, do some washing... The whole quietness unnerved me. When she left on Thursday, Rachel gave me a patronising high five. Thanks again for Sunday, mate. You watch. It'll be dead. And it was. For the first part, at least. Because her office was new, it didn't have a toilet yet.
so when nature calls you had to walk the 50 yards of carpeted hallway down to the reception. On a normal day, I'd pad out the walk as long as I can. I'd give my legs a stretch, flirt with the receptionist before they leave. Because I spend so much time working alone, I have to make my own plan, which mainly involves my inside joke with the billboard you can see from the hallway. There's nothing special about it, it's just a picture of a woman holding a plate of food, and the caption reads, Sheila's tuna surprise. And her face looks so sarcastic and venomous, as if she's saying to someone off camera, Fucking tuna surprise, alright? I find it funny anyway. It's as I'm passing tuna surprise that I realise I'm actually speeding up. I don't really want to prolong the journey. It was cold and dark and I was quite happy in the office with a TED Talk playlist and no one to bother me. The main hallway branches off about half a dozen smaller corridors, so on my way back I pass rows and rows of empty offices because the rest of the building hasn't moved in yet and the lights are just on to deter thieves. Be it fear or curiosity, but I always give a little glance down the halls as I pass. I don't know what I expect to see or when I start doing this, it just makes sense. For those two or three seconds you pass the entry, you might see someone or something interesting. I don't know. Habits are weird. That night there was someone. Connor, the head security. He was facing me but talking in hushed tones to someone with their back to me, wearing one of those hazmat suits. The same ones I saw a couple of weeks ago. Connor's eyes flicked up to me and filled with annoyance. You alright, mate? I froze and the plastic face of the hazmat suit swung to look at me. I couldn't see who was inside, but Connor tapped them on the shoulder and nodded down the hall behind him. The figure took themselves off down the hall and Connor started to march towards me with aggressive momentum. You're the constant, right? You do weekdays. You're here all the time. Oh, yeah. What are you doing? Just going to the loo. I'm just there, yeah? Yeah, is that a problem? He stops two-thirds of the way, but his gaze doesn't break. His eyes soften a little bit, but like from glass to stone. He flicks this horrible smile that looks like the ends of his mouth are being pulled up by hooks. That's fine then, mate. Just got to ask. Security in that. I'll give him this. His creepiness broke me out of the rhythm for just a minute. I let the silence hang for a few moments longer. I don't trust this sudden shift in attitude. I thought it was just me in tonight. Who was that? I nod down the hall. The smile wavers. Just maintenance, mate. On a Sunday night? It was an emergency call out. Why don't you get back to your phones? As if he pushed the panic button himself, this horrible alarm sounds through the hallway. He starts moving down the hall towards me, but he's grabbing his radio and I step to one side. What's that? A fire alarm? No. Should I be worried? Just get back in the office. He pulls up his radio as he passes me and makes for the reception. What the hell is going on down there? Connor barges through the reception double doors and I hang fire for a minute, letting him get a head start. I really needed the bathroom, but that was in the same direction and I didn't want to get chastised for not going straight back to the office like a good boy. His unnerving creepiness did unsettle me, I remember that much, but I accepted the reality of being none of my business and put it out of my head, like I'd gotten so used to doing. I slither through the reception, do my business and amble back down to the office. Eat your fucking tuna surprise, alright? Fob out, I beeped, and pressed, and then, bam, walked straight into the door. I took a moment to gather myself. I'd been so lost in my muscle memory, thinking about making a coffee and a tuna surprise, I thought the door would just open, like it always does. I scanned the card again, this time slower and more deliberate. The LED flashed, but instead of changing from red to green, it stayed on red. This is going to look great on my timesheet, I thought. I stood for another moment, just dumbfounded. A little voice in my head started to mutter about reliance on technology in the workplace, but I ignored it and moved away. Not sure where to, just away. Couldn't do much more here, could I? I go for my phone idly, as if it'll have the answers, and there's a text from Rachel. Two kisses. She's been on the wine. I reply. Quiet. Involuntary break. Locked out. She calls me less than a minute later. What happened? Where are you? Outside the main door. Have you seen Connor? What? Yeah, but he didn't say much. Look, I'm fine, everything's fine. I'm just outside the main door and my phone cards just stopped working. Uh, did an alarm go off? Yeah. Right. Have you tried cleaning it? The scanner? The card. I don't see how that's productive. I'll just go try and find one of the security guys and see if they can help me. No, wait! 
let me get Tim for you. The technician? No, he's on a date tonight. I don't want to bother him. It's fine. He's here. One second. Holy shit, Tim. You get that one quiet. He's got an override code for the scanner. It's three, four, nine, seven. No dice. Are you sure? Try it again. Could I just talk to Tim? Did an alarm go off in the building? Yeah, why? It might have locked the card reader temporarily. Crap, I am going to kill Connor. This has happened before, I take it? No, just shut up a minute while I think. All I hear is rumbling. She's tossing the phone around. Rachel, what's happening? Hello? The line drops. I try the code again, just to humour her. And again. The third time I leave a little gap between each number. Still nothing. I just stand in uncomfortable silence for as long as it lasts, waiting for her to call back. Can I help you? I turn. Towering above me is a six-foot security guard, broad and dark. His eyes are beady and his face is blank and dopey. But he fits in well inside this bleak, empty building, unlike the scrawny, agitated man he's looking down on. My, uh, card won't work. My eyes dart to the scanner, pausing long enough for him to get the picture, then back to him. You work here. What? Yeah, sorry, I mean, of course I do. I raise the card a bit to validate my claim. I believe you. Why else would you be here at this time? I just really love my job. Can you let me in? How? I don't know. Do you have, like, a master key or something? No. LGM haven't printed them yet. We've just got access to the front and back doors. Your security? Noted. How are you meant to do your job if you can't get into all the rooms? With difficulty. If you need your key, I can try resetting it. Follow me. We move down the hallway in single file, the silence only being broken by the squeaking of Boyd's boots and the desperate wheezes from his nose. You heard that alarm as well, didn't you? I'm not deaf. Apparently it might have locked down the card reader. According to Rachel, anyway. Probably. Nothing ever works here. I, uh, I bumped into Connor before, but he wasn't very talkative. Do you know what the alarm was for? God knows. There's all sorts of crap goes on down here. I keep my nose out of it. They pay me £7 an hour to sit behind the desk, not ask questions. His name is Boyd, by the way. He didn't introduce himself. I had to read it off his name tag like an animal. I'm Jones, by the way. And I didn't ask. Sheila, can we get some pseudo surprise down here to sort him out? past the corridor. I peek, and there's nothing. I think about bringing up Connor's aloof behaviour to Boyd when... For a second I see the plywood panels shake. It came from above, whatever it was. It sounded like something scuttling around above us. You heard that, didn't you? Probably a rat. Big rat, I think. There's no more shuffles for the rest of the trip down and I withhold comment as Boyd squeezes his fat ass behind a tiny desk. I just feel for the chair. His sausage fingers prod and poke at the keyboard, and he rests my card on this little black box, like a shop scanner. He wiggles it a few times to get the calibrating position just right, and I lose a brain cell with every second that passes. Boyd? Are you there? Boyd raises his radio without looking up from the screen. Connor? What's going on up there? Are you with Jones? Uh, yeah, he's here. What was that alarm about? Keep him with you, alright? Come off it, bud. Where are you? I'm just, um, doing the rounds upstairs. Stay in the reception, both of you. Sounds fun. He's a bit of a wild card, but he should be doing the rounds on the upper floors. Why he cares about you, I don't know. Is he looking for rats up there? Connor? Hello? Nothing. His radio's down. I'm going to check on him. How long will you be? As long as it takes. Do you know where he is? Will you have to check every floor? He should be on the fifth floor by now, but it's hard to say. Can I just take my card and go? Sit tight, office boy. You'll be back in your cube soon enough. He wiggles himself out of the desk and nearly knocks over his pen holder. Use the desk phone if you need me. He taps his own radio, then plods to the elevator and prods the buttons. They don't light up. Ugh, I don't believe this. He dispenses some more heavy breaths and starts on the stairs, 
leaving me alone in the silent main building reception. At least it beats working. The reception is one of these contemporary nightmares with big glass windows looking out onto the side street. I think they call it open plan. I always feel unsure when I walk past because anyone on the street gets a free license to look in and stare at you. Not like my comfortable office at the back of the building facing the glamorous car park. It's dark and dead, but I see something bobbing. A torch off someone's phone, rocking and shaking like the owner is running. Then the owner appears. A woman not dressed for the cold weather, looking behind her constantly as she runs. She looks up at me and her eyes are frantic and bloodshot. Her hair is all matted and frizzy. It's Motormouth Nelly. But what's happened to her? She looks behind her again and starts running up at the door. She's shouting, but I can't hear her. I'm frozen staring at her, but just as I move closer to hear her, something leaps out of the darkness and onto her. I can't see exactly what it is. Her torch goes face down and she hits the ground. Millie rolls around on the steps and this thing gets caught under her hair and jacket like it's attacking her. I can hear her screaming but I, I can't do anything and, but stand and watch. In seconds her face disappears under her hair and I think I can make out something bony and black covering her face like a hand. Then something splatters on the window and Millie goes still. It takes me a few seconds to register what is on the window that came out of her. It's blood. I start backing away clumsily, not knowing where to look or what to do. Run, run, hey, you're finished with the lock. Down, down, down. boy, boy, where is it? Where's Connor? Connor, no, no, boy, 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 I scramble over to the table and press the first button on the desk phone with empty hands. Static. I try the second button, but it's the third that gets him. Connor? Jones, sorry, I. Fuck. I need you to come back. Why? Something's happened. Shit, I, I don't know what. There's this woman outside, and I think she's hurt. Alright, Christ. I'll be right down. Calm down. And I'm back in the silence, and the darkness, with a dead woman on my doorstep. I gently put the phone back in the handset, putting off looking at her for as long as I can. I take a breath in, and out. Then turn back around. I'm not alone. A van has pulled up into the loading bay in front of the building. The back doors are open and two figures in hazmat suits appear out of the darkness, approaching Millie. What? I've seen those suits before. Have I seen those two people before? I pull my feet towards the door. Either they can't hear me, or they're just ignoring me. But where did they come from? They weren't here a minute ago. Christ, they work fucking fast. They bend down to Millie and pull her up from the pool of blood on the step, taking her to the van. I bang on the glass. Hey, stop it! What are you doing? The fear and anger slurry out of my throat and my words don't make sense. I just stand there banging on the glass for a few more times, letting the noise roll out. I was confused and scared. Were they coming for me as well? I watched them pull a lifeless body into the back of the van, shut the doors and drive away. Before they left, I'm sure I saw one of the blank plastic masks look directly at me. I get a hold of my throat and breathe sensibly for the first time in what felt like years. The caveman instinct quickly fades out and rational thought swiftly takes back its rightful place. That stuff on the window can't have been blood. That would mean something bad would have had to have happened. Was it a dog that attacked her? Or a fox or something? An animal couldn't have done that to her, surely. Could it? Then the paranoia kicks back in. Will Boyd see the blood and connect me to it? Will he open the doors to get a better look and let in more of what attacked her? After a sound ten seconds of worrying, I shut my eyes and hold my breath for as long as I can, heart rate rocketing off the scale. Once it's calmed down, I get a better grasp on the situation. Millie, a woman no one has seen eye or ear of for weeks, is seen running past her old workplace on a Sunday night. Going for a jog? Could happen. Only she wasn't jogging. She was being chased by some creatures or, or a thing I couldn't see. Maybe I'm just tired. Or maybe she has pissed off a fox or a stray cat. We had those in the city. But she didn't get up. That part is without explanation. Those hazmat suit people, I've seen them before in the office. Rachel shouted at them. She told them to get back downstairs. Was Millie downstairs? What is downstairs anyway? Does Boyd know? Okay, focus, focus. We can't do anything about her now. She's been taken away. We'll tell Boyd when he gets back and it'll sort itself out. But this stuff on the window and doorstep is more pressing. 
the space where Millie fell has this pool of liquid where her head was, and I kneel down to inspect it. In the dim porch light, I can see that it's dense and oily, bubbling and throbbing like it's cooking on the step. Like it's alive. What are you doing? I whip around lightning fast and there's Boyd, hesitating in the clinical reception light, looking as unimpressed as ever. Millie was there. She's the woman that used to work here. She came running up to the door, but something attacked her. This this thing. I I couldn't see what it was exactly. You've been drinking, haven't you? This thing attacked her. I know she's not there now, but look, her blood is on the door. I step aside and Boyd's beady eyes widen at the sight of the blood. He shuffles forward and leans in further, obviously trying to debunk what he can't understand. Boyd, where are you? In the reception. I tried looking for you. What happened to your radio? Is Jones there? Yeah, he's still here. He says he saw a woman outside getting attacked. Get him back in his office, alright? Now. What's going on, Connor? You need to keep him safe. He's the fucking constant, alright? The what? Out of the darkness, something comes scrambling up the stairs. It moves too quick for me to see, but it takes the stairs in two steps and launches itself at the window, smacking into the glass and dropping it to a step. There's silence, and Boyd leans in to try and study it further, its limbs twitching and fidgeting. That's what attacked Millie. We should go. The same shuffling from before, coming from the same place, above us. We both look up with mortified faces as the ceiling panels rattle and shake. In an instant, a panel pops through and another one of those things drops down onto Boyd's face. Boyd stomps around, clawing at his face, but it moves too quickly for him to grab. I can make out a mouth gnawing and snapping, but too many teeth to count. I think I can see scales, but it's moving too quick for me to tell, giving off this horrible, screeching noise. I back up, my hands fidgeting at my sides for something to defend myself with. I stroke past a folder and grab it in one, running at Boyd and smacking the thing on his face squarely in the back. It lets out this piercing screech and my head is filled with static, as if every piece of electric equipment is screaming at me to stop. The thing on Boyd's face drops limply to the floor and squirms for a few seconds, tendrils trying to grip at my leg. It convulses and crouches in on itself and silence returns to the reception. I look to Boyd and he's scratching his face compulsively, like there's an itch he can't get rid of. Are you okay? My face! I think it left something on my face. Boyd brings his paws down and there's a nasty mark covering his eye and forehead, halfway between a bruise and a blister. Does it hurt? (sighs) It's not important. Boyd wipes his face again but shrugs it off, looking down at the creature at our feet. In the dim light, I can get a proper look at it, but even then I still can't describe it properly. It has two rows of razor-sharp teeth underneath a concave head, which looks like a skull stretched over some gooey insides which bubble. Its body is spindly and scaly, with eight arms and three fingers on each claw. It has a long tail with something on the end, like a pod with a needle in it. We need to get out. Boyd moves to his desk and tries the release button. The doors click quietly, but don't budge. The front doors are no good. They're on lockdown too. The only other way is from the back door downstairs. No, no, no. We can't go downstairs. What are you talking about? Listen, these people came to collect Millie's body after the attack. They were wearing these hazmat suits, and I've seen them before. Rachel told them to get back downstairs. But they took her fucking body away. That isn't normal. And if they're from downstairs, I don't want to go down there. All that's down there is a storage cupboard and some shit. But you said yourself some weird stuff goes on in this building. It does. And if I haven't checked the basement an hour ago, I'd agree with you to take caution. But it's fine. Do you want to go further inside the building, away from the big open door? I'm on your side. The freaky alarm and these fucking things, it's it's weird, alright? It's messed up. But if LGM are doing any weird shit down there, or taking any bodies, they're hiding it pretty well. So, we can just slip through... And got ourselves the hell out of Dodge. How far is it to the back door? About five minutes. Boyd strides back behind his desk and pulls up a wooden broom. Without flinching, he snaps it in two on his tree trunk leg and passes it to me. In silence, we make our way down. The only sounds down the stairwell were Boyd's heavy breathing 
and the occasional scutter from something above us in the ceiling panels. Every time I heard one of those things move above us, my legs tensed and they willed me to freeze, like it would do any good. But I pressed on, and if Boyd felt as scared as I did, he didn't show it. Besides, we had our trusted mops. My eyes ping-ponged between the grubby whitewashed basement walls and the disgusting growth on Boyd's face. He was covering it with his meaty hand and kept wiping it with his sleeve as if it would do some good, but it only seemed to fester more and bruise. After five painful minutes, we make the building's loading bay. It's an unattractive place, illuminated by flickering bulbs that shed light on the oil stains and safety notices. It's a big garage door that backs onto the car park and a van parked to one side, which I assume is the same type as the one Millie was piled into. We pass loading equipment and crates of metallic boxes we politely ignore. They're scuffed and covered in writing that looks foreign. Boyd reaches the door and turns his key in the slot. Nothing. He tries again and hits the door in frustration. Crap. What's wrong? The door's working an auto-lock system. It must have gone down with that alarm. Even the fire doors are rigged. This is LGM we're talking about. Besides, if they've got stuff going on in here, you can be sure they'll be keeping this door locked the tightest. Boyd turns to me for the first time since we left the reception, and I quickly study the growth now collapsing over his eye. Soon, he wouldn't be able to see. You need to wash your face before it gets worse. I'm fine. Now. Boyd shuffles across the basement and squeezes into the tiny service bathroom. It's not a glamorous thing by any stretch, with cracked tiles and a little tower of empty toilet roll tubes. But it has water and a mirror, and that was good enough. His hand pokes out with a radio in it. Hold on to this. I take it and clip it onto my belt. Not entirely sure I want it to ring. I look back on the garage doors and think about LGM, about my place in this company, and about how fucked up the last hour had been. What did Millie do to deserve that fate? It can't have been coincidence that she was outside this building. I try and rack my brain for any scrap of a clue that I might have picked up over my time here, but I come up short. My head has been buried so deep in the rut that I wouldn't have noticed anything weird or questionable. I think about my conversations with Grace, but all she said was that Millie went off the grid when she left. And now Grace has left too. Did the two ever talk after they left? There's six missed calls from Rachel, as well as countless messages asking where I am. Why does everyone want to know? I call her and she answers on the first ring. Where are you? What's happening? What? You're the boss. You're always in and out of the office, and there's a lot of shit I've been kept out of that isn't adding up. Who are those people in the suits? What are you talking about? Cut the shit, Rachel. You've got to know something. The same people you shouted at the other week are the ones taking away a dead fucking body. Are they LGM? Jones, please. Are they? Yes. It was Millie who they took away. Do you remember her? She died on your doorstep. She was attacked by this thing. The same things that are chasing us throughout this building. And then I think about all the staff that get turned over in this job. Is that what happens to them? No, just... What do you do to them? No, just... just... No. Fine. Fine. Just... Calm down. I need you calm. LGM doesn't just deal in restaurants, as you've probably gathered. We offer people up to scientific institutions. Volunteers, you might call them. That came from the bathroom, and practically made the tiles shake. Before I can creep around, Boyd stumbles out, clutching his face. The growth is covering his eye now, and it looks like an egg. No, many eggs. The largest is pulsing and emitting a soft glow. Boyd splutters words between pants and tries to claw at it with stubby fingers. I want to help him, but I'm glued to the floor in fear, the phone dangling limply between my fingers. He cracks the surface but pulls his arm away quickly, something following through with it. One of the creatures. His face disappears in a flurry of ooze and horrible liquid, and the creature clambers over his skull, eyes clicking and darting around the space. I'm already running towards the nearest door and down a hall. I don't know where, I just need to get away. Behind me I hear more of them emerging from Boyd's face and screaming around the basement. I can hear them clambering down the hallway, rattling over the ceiling and doors. Door. Door. I need a door. In front of me there's a wall of PVC curtains blocking something, but a door comes up on my left and I slip inside as quickly and quietly as I can. Pulling it to and gripping the locked handle for dear life. 
There's nothing but my breathing for a few seconds, and I hear a few of them scramble across the door, their nails scratching the cheap gloss work. It rattles under my weight, and I grip the handle tighter, like it'll do any good. Then all is silent, but I don't relax my grip. With my other hand, I feel up the wall for a light switch, but I find it hanging from a cord. I pull down, and the same room is illuminated. It's cramped and intimate, mostly taken up by two clothing racks of hazmat suits. Along one wall, a dozen plain, plastic helmets stare blankly at me. There's a safety notice behind them that reads, Always wear your PPE. I quickly scan below it and there's graphs of different types of acids, guides on how to treat burns, and a breakdown of alarm definitions. Apparently, one bleep means a supervisor is required, two is for a laboratory spillage and incidents, three is for something called subject unresponsive, and four means building quarantine. The alarm earlier had four bleeps. All the doors are locked down. Something down here triggered a quarantine. If I go back up to the hallway, I'm back in the loading bay with those creatures. The only way is through the PVC curtain, whatever lies beyond. Whatever it is that requires so many different alarms. I'll obviously need one of the suits to protect me going forward, and if nothing else, they'll slow down the creatures from latching onto my face. As I put on one of the suits, the sarcastic portion of my brain flits across the stage in top hat and tails and remarks that it didn't expect my first Sunday to go like this. It does a small tap routine as a sort of punchline, and off it goes. Back to the theatre of rational thought, everybody. The suit is awkward and clunky, and if anything, I'll attract more creatures with the amount of noise I'm making. It's as I exit the changing rooms that I notice a trail of slime leading down the hallway, coming from the other side of the PVC blinds. I use my broom half to pull the plastic away and step inside, noticing first the two large red buttons on either wall marked Emergency Alarm. It's grubby and clinical at the same time, like some shady dentist or serial killer's workshop. The room is lit in intervals by a swirling red light. There's monitors and keypads on two desks in front of me, half of it looking like it had been ripped off a car boot sale. The desks are facing onto two glass rooms, separated in the middle by an internal glass panel, but they're both filled with a forest green mist, and I can't see inside. For a disturbing second, they look like twisted versions of my own sales cube upstairs, but I push that thought right out of my head. Two large buttons sit before me, one for each side, with mist slash clear taped over them. I deduce that one press fills the room with this mist, so I chance it and press clear on the left button. Slowly, the fog clears, and the first thing I notice is a sort of hospital bed standing upright. Only, this bed has straps and open metal holders wrapped around it like a ribcage, and the floor is covered with ooze and dirt and cracked open eggs, like the ones I saw on Boyd's face. The second thing I see is a pair of legs dangling from a panel in the ceiling. I lean forward and see they're still attached to a body, thank God. One wearing a hazmat suit, but one that isn't moving. It looks somewhere between a hospital room and a prison cell. There are papers and files and coffee cups strewn around the desks, and someone obviously left in a hurry. There's a trail of liquid leading across the floor and out of the room, starting from the crap panel in the cell, and I'm not exactly relieved to learn the source of the trail. The monitor to the left, the one lined up with the cell, is blinking at me with a paused screenshot. It shows somebody in the cell. Millie. I pick up the upturned office chair and sit awkwardly, resting the broken broom against the desk. I scan the keyboard and hit play. The footage is sped up, but it shows her strapped into that bed and writhing in pain. It's grainy, but I can make out eggs around her. The mist keeps coming and going with what I presume is the passing of days. The eggs crack open, and I watch Millie writhe and squirm in agony as the creatures crawl all over her body. It's so painful to watch, but I can't look away. They smell her and swarm her, and after some time, she simply goes limp. And when the mist comes, the creatures leave her alone, receding back into their corners and scratching at the walls. It looks like they got bored of her. Another shroud of mist, and when it clears, the creatures are all subsided and docile. A suit enters through the open pane and starts unfastening Millie's cage. She springs to life and lunges forward, grappling with them and shoving them aside. A couple of creatures jolt around them as Millie forces the suit to the other side of the cell and leaps through the door, slamming it shut behind her. I watch the creature fire awake and snap at the suit but they can't get at it. 
The suit runs frantically around the cell trying to get out, banging on the door. It turns to the roof of the cell and jumps up at the panel, knocking it aside. I look at the real panel and it isn't big, probably half a metre on all sides. The suit tries to jump at the panel and grab onto the sides in a bid to lift itself up. It manages to get halfway before the smoke fills the cell. I watch its legs flail intensely and then go limp in the mist. When the mist clears, the legs dangle as they are now, and the creatures are slowly making their way up its body, disappearing through the gaps between its body and the sides of the panel. This was tonight. This was happening as I was sat upstairs. So, Millie escaped, and the mist knocks out whoever or whatever is inside the rooms. But what was she doing in there with those creatures? I cast my mind back to the call with Rachel. What did she say? Something about volunteers for scientific experiments. I scan the desk for any clues or reason, praying for someone to spring out and shout surprise and this all be a sick joke on my first Sunday. There are papers with foreign writing, Japanese by the looks of it, and some of them look like the order forms I used to get from the printer, except I don't recognise the content. On the other side of the desk is a phone and I flick it on. It's got low charge and there's over a hundred calls from mum, dad and countless texts. Where are you? Call us. Are you safe? Answer, please. Their names are mainly family members, but at the bottom of them all, before any got sent, are three messages from the contact, Jones. Hope it isn't too bad today. Rain check? Just heard the news. You okay? The three messages I sent to Grace, but she never answered. With dread, I press clear on the right button, and the mist separates in the corresponding room, though I instantly wish it didn't. Grace is strapped to her own bed, her body covered in eggs, half-burst and bulging. Her face is oozing with slime and what skin is showing is sickly and yellowed. Around her a dozen creatures are clicking and piled on top of each other like a horde, shifting and flinching in what I presume is sleep. I feel sick. I want to run and never look back, but I also want to help her. Grace rolls her head and looks at me with glazed eyes, which widen as far as they can. Hello? The mist, it was on, it was on for longer. Grace, it's me. I take off my stupid helmet and try to look positive and not horrified. What happened to you? They, <coughs> they fired me and took me. I'm coming in. Yeah. No, 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 no. Look at you. It's what they do. But I can help you. There's no help for me. Look at the tapes. I did. I saw what happened to Millie. Is this where Rachel brought you when she fired you? I never left. I see a sort of smile form on her face, but it's more of a grimace. She's in pain, and I'm in pain watching her. I can't leave you here. Y you have to... You have to tell them what... What LGM is. What, what they did to us. One of the creatures, the size of a small dog, slowly clambers up the back of her head and eyes me with narrow beads. Helmet! It takes a few seconds to realise what she said, and by the time I'm thrusting my helmet back on, the creature has already lunged at the glass and smashed a chunk out of it. The sound startles the rest of the hive, and as I turn to run, a dozen creatures are scrambling up to the hole trying to break out. I amble through the PVC blinds and back down the corridor towards the basement, nearly slipping on the ooze trail. The changing room won't be any good if they see me go inside. They'll break down that door in a cinch. I make the loading bay and Boyd is laying lifeless half out of the bathroom, a gooey web tied up in the doorway above him. I make out a couple of eggs in the ooze, but don't linger on looking, making the stairs two at a time. The building is alive with these things. I can hear them winding around the stairwell looking for me, tip-tapping inside the walls. I try and block them out, and on the way up I catalogue my options. Open space isn't great, they can move fast, very fast, and I'd be a sitting duck. I need a closed area, somewhere I know they haven't got to. Somewhere like the cube. I clamber to the reception and swipe up my key from its dock. Some quick thinking I was bloody proud of myself for having. Fucking tuna surprise, alright? I clear the hallway in a fraction of the time, scrambling for my keycard with stupid plastic gloves and praying to all the tuna surprise in the world that it works this time. It does. 
I slip inside and throw my weight against the main office door until it closes, darting through the desks and into the tiny sales cube at the back. I slip in again and do the same trick to force the door closed, propping a chair against the handle just to be safe. It's locked, it's secure, and it's quiet. I dim the lights and back up to the window, crouching in the gap between the desk and the wall. If I wait here long enough, they'll pass and I can sneak through the window. It's only a two-story drop. Or maybe I can shimmy along to the fire escape, or... I fumble around in the suit and have to unzip the front to reach my belt loop. I wrangle out Boyd's radio and take off my helmet. It's Jones. Boyd's gone. Of course it's you. You always come out on top, don't you? What is that supposed to mean? Well, haven't you figured it out yet? You're the constant, Jones. You've always been here and you're always going to be here. In all those weeks, you were the one who set this whole scheme up. We couldn't have done it without you. Stop talking shit! People have died, alright? I've seen what's downstairs. Just stop. Yeah, I know they've died. It's all gone to shit. That stupid bitch shouldn't have tried escaping. No one gets too far from this place. Once they've picked you, they've got you. And they picked you alright, didn't they? Stop saying things like that. I remember seeing you in the cube. You always kept your head down. Eyes glued to the bloody screen. Didn't have a clue, did you? All those calls you were taking, and the orders you arranged were securing this experiment and getting LGM the equipment they needed. But what for? The idea is, is that Rachel will hire people who won't be missed, and brings them down here when we're ready. Students, young people, or miserable sods like you who don't do anything with their lives. Then they'd lock you in with these creatures, and see what happens. Why? All in the name of science, mate. No legitimate science lab would be able to get away with this. They'd be shut down. LGM opened the doors to them. The whole business is just a front. I'm turning you off. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Why not? Because I'm about to shut the power off. And I think you'd appreciate the company while we're in a blackout. Why would you turn the power off? I'm in the maintenance room. Staring at an automated door to the outside. Because one of those idiots pushed for full quarantine. The idea Every is outside door is locked. We wouldn't be missed. But I found the mains. And brings them down here when we're ready. It'll reach out the students and we can all get out. You mean you can? Why? Where are you? And they'd lock you in with these creatures. The office. And see what oh, that's just bad luck. It's a shame too, because Rachel really liked you. But the card reader's back online. Small ones come back on first, mate. That's nothing. I'm not waiting for this door to reboot. No, Connor, wait! Blackout. The whole office disappears in front of me. And suddenly crouched in my glass cube, I feel more exposed than I did in the reception. Connor? Are you there? The lights will be back on soon. Now, if you can get down to the maintenance room, this door is good to go. I'll leave it open for you. Have fun. Shit. Fuck. No. No. What is it? They're outside the door. Fuck! Get away from me! Fuck! The line goes dead. Another exit is compromised and I'm left crouching in the dark. It's in the same place that I spent so many weeks on autopilot, not noticing a thing that I now feel most aware and tuned into my surroundings. My eyes start to adjust to the shadows and I can make out the vague shapes of desks, computers, chairs. If I can wait it out till morning, if I can wait it out till morning, Monday morning, the whole office will be here. It's only 12 hours. It'll be sunlight, and this place will be flooded with 30 people, all working for the same fucked up place. How many of them know? Will Rachel be here too? Maybe they'll all turn up in hazmat suits, and I can slip out unnoticed. If none of them know either, who'll be the first to stumble on that laboratory downstairs? How am I ever going to explain that to the police? Will Grace still be down there with no one to give her food? What's it going to look like when someone finds Boyd and Connor, and I was the only person in the building? A ceiling panel drops by the front door, just above where the light switch connects to the rest of the grid. Something drops to the floor without much grace and I can hear it scuttling around on the cheap carpet, ruffling papers and sniffing its way around the room. My breath feels like it's going to leap out of my chest and abandon ship. My thoughts are bouncing around my head like adrenaline fueled junkies. Focus on the creature. No, run. Run for your life. Call Rachel. No, fuck her. Is Grace okay? Where is it now? What is it looking for? How long, How long can I sit here? 
I forced my eyes shut and locked them closed, reminding myself constantly that the door is locked and I have time to think. If I smash this window as planned, it'll hear me and break the cubicle glass. I'd have no chance. But if all the lights are off, I reason. It doesn't know I'm here. Why did I come in here in the first place? I should have been aiming for the front doors of the building. There's a button to unlock them on Boyd's desk. I could have been out in a shot. I know there might be more suits out there, but if I'm expecting them, I've got a better chance of avoiding them. There's just a small problem of getting out of the cube. I contort myself to a crouch and gently creep across the cheap carpet, focusing on the desk, the walls, the computer. I feel for the handle and unlock it as slowly as I can, dreading the inevitable click of the locking mechanism unlocking. But I had steady hands and it was a cheap lock, so persuasion was simple. I gently let the office door swing open and take the first uneasy steps of my green mile. Caveman instinct met office muscle memory and I swerved between the desks without even thinking, though ready to dive across one should I need to. The last stretch between the desks and the front door was the hardest. Why do we need this much room for a reception area? I clenched my fists like it'll help and stepped cautiously across. It's on the couch. It's close. I could reach out to it. Does it know I'm here? I freeze and shut my eyes, rattling through the stages of acceptance and denial at the same time. I hear another movement and pray that it's moving away. I feel a soft bristle of air move up my arm, and I will my goosebumps not to make a sound. Some fluid drips onto my shoulder, spit, and it lingers for a moment on my face. I can feel its teeth on my ear. It lets out soft, frequent breaths that beat on my skin. It's studying me. Slithering tongue gently wraps around my cheek, and it feels moist and warm and fucking horrible. I clench my eyes together, willing it away, and then it moves on, scuttling back across the office towards the cube. So, I move on too. I'll give myself time to think of it later. Right now I need that front door. I gently amble over to the door, and just as I turn the handle, the bloody power comes back online. Without a second glance, I whip out the door and make a sprint down for the hall. Fully visible, fully exposed, but in full motion. I shove through door after door, not bringing myself to look down the side halls or what state they might be in. My eyes dart outwards to the tuna surprise poster, but my cheek twinges, sensitive and raw. I flick my head forwards and make the reception, slamming the door release and emerging through the sheet glass door. The air outside is cool and like a refreshing blanket. I feel every bead of sweat trickle down my face like electric sparks, and I can see my breath thick in front of me. I amble down the stairs and look around, expecting an armada of truck and hazmat suits, but there's nothing. Just a quiet side street on a Sunday night. No creatures, no mess. I meet the end of the street, and a young couple laugh and joke as they walk past me, completely oblivious to the sweaty man in a hazmat suit staring around himself wildly. There's a tramp further down the road that I passed every day that he's rummaging in a bin and doesn't even look up. The world outside is oblivious to what LGM is doing in that building. Probably as oblivious as I was, and I worked in the damn place for three months. As I start up the street to the main road, I wrestle my phone out of the suit. There's just one text from Rachel, but I don't even read it. I ignore it and call the police. I don't tell her everything. Of course I don't. I just tell her, oh, there's been an accident at LGM. She calmly tells me not to worry and that they'll send a car out to the postcode I gave her. She tells me to stay put, but once I hang up I throw my phone into the nearest bin I pass. Rachel and everyone else that works in that office can take the fall for it. I'm not being the face this horrible night. I make my way to the end of the road, onto the main strip of bars and restaurants, and hail a black cab. I fall onto the seat and let the leathery interior consume me. My flat is silent and black. For the longest time I just stand in the doorway, not even looking at anything, just thinking. The fluid drips off my suit and onto the carpet. It'll probably never come off. I shed the suit and shuffle into the bathroom. I flick the light on and Grace is in the shower. She's choking and spluttering and she's asking for my help. She's crying and I'm just frozen in this spot and I can't do anything. And then she's gone. I step into the shower set the water going and just fall into it. I stare blankly at my cheap tiles. I don't want to move. I don't want to see anything anymore. Grace, I am so, so sorry. I'm sorry to anyone who had to work in that horrible place. I'm sorry that it ground me down into such an echo of myself. 
I'm sorry for being blind. I've always been taught to just keep your head down and earn as much as you can. That's how you do it. It's how you be an adult. I thought when your boss tells you not to ask about something, well, you just don't ask about it. I can tell you one thing. I'll never take another office job again. Maybe I'll get a job in a coffee shop or something. Serve drinks to people on their way to work. All those people keeping their heads down, clocking in day after day and never looking up. Just makes you think, I suppose, how many companies are hiding things and what they don't want you to know. Think about it for a second. Right now. You might work in an office or in a bar or something. It doesn't really matter. You might be on your way to work right now or ironing your clothes. But just think for me about all those times your boss has acted a bit off. Or when you've been given a document to file that you don't really get, but you've been told not to worry about it. Just be careful, because, and take this from me, behind closed doors, they could be up to anything.